Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Chris Doherty, who is a senior fellow in the defense program at the Center for a New American Security, and he is a former airborne infantryman who served in the legendary 75th Ranger Regiment. Chris, welcome back. It's always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Pago. Glad to be here. Uh, a pleasure having you on uh, again. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman also sponsors our cyber coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium. Uh, Chris, great to have you back on the on the program. Uh, the Biden administration released its defense budget just as uh, Russian's war with Ukraine was uh, starting to generate some potential lessons, unfortunately, <laughs> in lifetiming uh, matters, even though I believe there were some adjustments clearly that were made to the budget uh, to acknowledge that. Um, the, the Russians are guilty of all sorts of things, right? Bad assumptions, bad planning, bad logistics, bad leadership, and bad equipment to, to a degree. Still, there are some lessons, right? Vulnerability of tanks and armored vehicles to missiles, uh, as well as loitering munitions, risk to uh, reconnaissance and battlefield helicopters in a contested battle space, uh, paramount importance of logistics. U.S. Army leaders maintain that um, it, it's too early to draw some of these lessons and that the United States Army would fight fundamentally differently, right? Tanks do not go without inf accompanying uh, infantry uh, and, and the like. Is it too early to draw lessons and if it's not too early to draw lessons, what are the lessons you're drawing across strategy, tactics, and equipment sort of in the broad? And we can drill down into the Army lessons uh, in a moment. Yeah, I think we have to be careful with the lessons that we draw, but I don't think it's too early to draw any kind of lessons or to make any kind of inferences about how the character of war is changing and, and how we ought to adapt to that changing character. I think there are some things that are happening in this war in Ukraine that we have seen hints of in other conflicts, namely Nagorno-Karabakh most recently, that are starting to indicate uh, perhaps persistent changes. Now, again, I understand the Army's conservatism here, uh, you know, small C conservatism in their viewpoint, which is to say, we don't operate the way the Russians are. The Russians have operated from the strategic all the way down to the tactical level in some fundamentally pretty incompetent ways. And so basic things like providing infantry screens and artillery fires um, to prevent the use of long-range anti-tank guided munitions against undefended, unscreened tank or armored vehicle formations. That is fundamentally something that by and large, the United States Army would not do unless it was making an egregious error. And so I understand some of their comments about that. At the same time, however, we're seeing things like the persistent targeting capacity of these Bayraktar TB2 uh, drones inside what ought to be an extremely contested airspace. And when you see that, and now you've seen it once here, but we've seen it in other conflicts, um, like I referenced Nagorno-Karabakh, we've seen similar results in places like Libya and Syria. We have to ask ourselves, what is going on with the ability of some of these systems to provide targeting information? And why is that happening inside what we would think would be the weapons engagement zone of a fairly advanced integrated air defense system? 
Um, and if that's the case, and I, I think there's enough data now to suggest that it is, what does that tell us about air operations in future contested environments? What does it tell us about air ground integration in these kinds of environments? What does it tell us about our ability to conduct uh, persistent reconnaissance and strike operations in those kinds of environments? Because for many years, we have assumed that those kind of aircraft couldn't persist in this kind of environment and couldn't actually pass targeting data to the kinds of systems they needed to. Now there's a counterpoint to that, which is, well, you know, perhaps the Russians are much like we assumed the Armenians were operating their systems incompetently or their systems just aren't as good as we thought they, that they were. Um, but that leads us down a lot of really interesting uh, rabbit holes in terms of the future of, of the operating environment. Um, I, you know, j just to build on that, right? I mean, that uh, conflict in 2020 uh, was uh, seminal in a lot of ways. Uh, and the Armenian case was, hey, we have such um, ground capability, it was a blind spot, even though folks in their military command and industrial structure said, hey, you know, they're going to fight us with these long range drones and loitering weapons. There was a sense, hey, the invincibility or the prowess or the bravery of the army will overcome these challenges. And it ended up being a very, very faulty assumption, right? I mean, sometimes the other guy does have technology uh, that uh, is a great leveler, right? I mean, this is like knights and crossbows and firearms, right, In to, to a degree. Um, what are the, I wanna get to the, the land uh, lessons here in a minute, but what are some of the fundamental assumptions we have to reconsider? Because we had convinced ourselves that a future war, Chris, is gonna be you know hypersonic, uh, it's going to be uh, in uh, cyber. Um, it's uh, going to be, you know, with long range precision. Well, the Russians are using increasingly fewer cruise missiles in part because they're running out. They've only fired like two hypersonic missiles, questioning how many they have in their inventory. They lost the cruiser to two subsonic, um, you know, anti-ship missiles, right? But it, the cyber has been important, but not all dominant. What are some of the fundamental assumptions we have to reconsider um, because this hasn't, you know, only been in space. I mean, it's been dropping iron bombs to dislodge defenders from a steel plant to take mm -hmm. Mariupol. Yeah. And it's been, you know, it's been soldiers down in the mud, digging fighting positions, um, or trenches, trenches right around, right, around right. Kiev. And, and, you know, that, you know, that goes back to, you know, that some of the earliest, military history of people digging ditches and, and, and digging uh, positions for protection. Um, and so you're seeing these sort of consistent themes in warfare, but now you're seeing these kind of discontinuities. And I think many folks perhaps anticipated greater discontinuity, right? They, they anticipated, you know, I'm, I'm going to quote my, my former boss, uh, Bob Work, um, but they anticipated cyber bombs. And when the cyber bombs didn't look like what they anticipated, Right, which is you know these like massive outages and pandemonium and chaos and kinetic effects uh, created by a cyber, and instead looked like an onslaught of wipers, um, which are these malware attacks that that wipe data um, and, and distributed denial of service attacks and 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 doxing that we did see. It's still meaningful. It just wasn't this. You know, you didn't see like big, huge, massive explosions at oil refineries perhaps the way that some folks were expecting to see um, in the cyber domain. And the same, I think, goes in space. The Russians did a lot of stuff to the Ukrainian ability to access space. Um, 
but their Ukrainians have been able to leverage other providers, uh, commercial providers, as well as um, you know NATO provided uh, space-based capabilities that has that have given them a backup to that. So you're seeing simultaneously these wars moving in these directions, but it isn't as decisive as perhaps a lot of us thought that it had, might have been. And you still have it alongside these very old, even ancient aspects of warfare, like you know, soldiers committing atrocities as part of, I would argue, a, 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 a deliberate terror campaign of coercion, um, people digging trenches when they're trying to besiege a city, the classic logistical problem of the besieged city against the besiegers, both of whom are running out of supplies. I mean, that's, that's ancient, right? That goes back you know, perhaps even to the Babylonians. This is nothing new about that. Um, so it's fascinating how you have some of these high technologies. I will say one of the things that you know, I'd like to maybe defend the Western analytic community on about the aspects of technology was that we have long been pretty skeptical about some of the Russian technological capabilities in particular. Um, we've, all, you know, we've, we've long pointed out that while they do have um, some precision strike capabilities, they are significantly more limited in the conventional precision strike capabilities relative to the People's Republic of China, um, both in terms of capability um, and diversity of systems, but particularly in terms of capacity. Um, so when you look at, when you say, well, you know, the Russians have always only fired so many hypersonic weapons, um, you know, we've always known that they were limited there. And frankly, I don't see a good target set in Ukraine that would require hypersonics. Like if the Russians were firing hypersonics there, I would say, you know, that's, that's odd. Um, what, is it, what is it you think you need to fire a hypersonic at? Um, what do you think you need that speed and maneuverability um, in, in the end game? Um, but yeah, you, you're also seeing things like this, this Neptune missile. But I think part and parcel of that is, is we're also implicit in our critique and are implicit in our response to this is an assumption that everything has to be super duper fast, super duper cyber enabled, super duper you know, technologically fancy with artificial intelligence in order to function in the modern battlefield. And I think those of us who've spent a lot of time thinking about this have always kind of known that wasn't true. There is always going to be a mix of the, the sublime and the exquisite with the everyday and the down and dirty. That's just kind of how warfare works, right? You, you know, you, in it, even World War II, right? You've got these like scientists sitting down in New Mexico building a bomb that was you know, inconceivable 20, 30 years before that. And meanwhile, you've got people you know, stabbing each other with bayonets on uh, you know, the Pacific Islands. Those things exist alongside each other. And I think they always will. And I think we have to carry that forward and maintain some humility about our ability to do this, this technologically determinative perspective that I think we've perhaps caught ourselves in over the last 15 years. Um, and, and so the, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned that, right? I mean, um, you know, if you you talk to some, uh, you know, whether they're army troopers or uh, Marines, you know, in World War II, I mean, it was literally killing them on the beaches with with hatchets. At the same time, we were developing the atom bomb and radar and a whole bunch of other kinds of uh, sophisticated uh, capabilities. Uh, and I should also point out, right, I mean, SpaceX uh, did an enormous service to Ukraine because when the Russians were jamming Starlink, um, the company came up with a jam-proof version uh, yeah. to, to allow uh, Ukraine uh, space access. And obviously, Maxar and a lot of commercial imagery now obviously is, is available as well. I, I want to uh, drill down. I want to get to the industrial elements of this. 
because you make an excellent point um, that you you need this span, right? I mean, the, the Ukrainians also have proven remarkably adept uh, at using everything from digi drones, modern, you know, modifying commercial uh, products. There are some classical military products that are rolling off their lines, and obviously they're getting help from uh, allies and partners. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the army specific lessons in this, right? Um, there are some folks uh, and friends of mine, we should note our, our sponsor Bell uh, is competing both for the Flora, the future long range uh, assault aircraft, as well as the future armed reconnaissance uh, aircraft. Uh, obviously Sikorsky uh, and Sikorsky and Boeing are competing uh, against Bell for both of these uh, contracts. Uh, and, and we talked to Major General Wally Rugen, uh, who uh, oversees the future vertical lift portfolio uh, with the U.S. Army Futures Command, who said, you know, look, it's too early to draw lessons. But then there are Army scout helicopter friends of mine who say, look, FARA is, you know, unmanned may be a better way of sort of executing that mission, right? I mean, clearly that competition will continue and the U.S. Army will make its decisions. But as you look at this from a ground warfare perspective, what are some of the other nuanced takeaways uh, that that change maybe how, if if you were advising the U.S. Army, might be different ways of of doing this and mixing, as you said, that that sublime and unsophisticated and the commercial digi product, if you will, with the high-end exquisite, whether it's in the electromagnetic spectrum or elsewhere. I mean, right. I mean, that's kind of where the real battle is interestingly being fought, but, you know, interested in your take on where we need to be going and some of the questions we need to be asking. So one of the things, and and I, I kind of rarely do this for uh, an armed service, but, you know, I do think the army should pat itself and and not just the army, right. If you, you know, Marine Corps force design 2030, is, is in a similar ilk, um, they should pat themselves a little bit on the back for where their conceptual and doctrinal development and, their, and a lot of their force development priorities have been headed. Because you look at some of the things they're doing and you look at what, what's happening in Ukraine and you can say like, actually, yeah, that some of these things cover down pretty well against what the kinds of problems we're seeing the Russians have and the successes that we're seeing the Ukrainians have. For example, the army's emphasis on being able to rapidly and reliably leverage effects from multiple domains to achieve um, to achieve operational outcomes that's kind of core to multi-domain operations. And you look at what the Russians are struggling with right now, and it's their inability to coordinate effects between space, cyberspace, electromagnetic spectrum, um, air and ground. And you know, to the extent that they're doing it from sea, as we've seen with the Moskva, like not so much. Um, they just aren't good at doing that sort of multi-domain coordination. Each domain is largely operating of its own volition or doing very minimal, very rough and ready coordination, which as we can see, isn't achieving the desired outcome. So the, you know, the army can say, okay, like multi-domain operations, there's, there was some there there. Um, and there are some other things like long range fires being a priority um, and specifically prioritizing range and precision rather than just mass, right? Cause it buys you a couple of things. One, it requires, it, it buys you the ability to hit exactly what you want to hit. And the second thing is, and this is, I think, something you're seeing with the Russians as they're trying to push forward these extremely um, artillery-heavy battalion tactical groups, is it lowers your, your uh, logistical burden, right? Hauling around shells and fuel for self-propelled artillery or for the trucks that drag them, that's a big logistical burden and has been for centuries because um, it's one of the few things you've never been able, you, you, don't, you can't go out into a field and dig up an artillery shell the way you can a potato. Um, so it's one of those like uniquely difficult 
logistical burdens on ground forces for a long time. And I think, you know, having the ability to do that with precision lowers the amount of mass that you need to bring, which lowers your logistical footprint, right? Which makes you more effective on a pound for pound basis. So LRPF, yeah, it kind of makes sense. The networking aspect, I mean, how, many, how much have we heard about the Russians' inability to execute command and control and particularly their inability to execute the, the, the third part of, of command control and communications, you know, the, the C3, which is the communications aspect. And they're using unsecured radios um, and, and frankly, cellular phones to do battlefield comms and they're getting killed because of it because they're they're radiating like crazy and they're giving away their position. Um, so, you know, these are the kinds of things that like, you, you can look at the army parties, same thing goes with, um, you know, uh, mobile SHORAD or mobile short range air defense for those of you who are not familiar with acronym SOUP. Um, that would be a really important thing if you could have a mobile capability that can take down helicopters, low flying drones and, and, and attack aircraft and that can move around along with maneuver forces. Because if you watch what's happening with a lot of these Russian forces, which those of us who studied the Russian armed forces, even just sort of cursorily are shocked. Like they usually maneuver with so much air defense capability. And so we're not sure, like you, you see all these pictures of them. They look like they're stowed and not, not properly deployed. And they're just getting blown up by, by Bayraktar drones. And we're all kind of just wondering like, why aren't those things deployed and providing air defense coverage and what's going on here. But nevertheless, clearly that's something the army needs and continues to need to invest in, in order to prepare for the modern battlefield. I think what you're alluding to though, is there are some other priorities inside the, the army's investment portfolio um, that may need to perhaps shift a little bit or may need to shift our thinking about it. And I think FAR is a good example within the, ver the vertical lift portfolio, which is, do we really think that the future battlefield will be characterized by large numbers of manned um, rotary wing reconnaissance aircraft, even if we can maybe tamp down their, their, uh, their signatures in the IR and the radar spectrum a little bit. Um, I, I have my doubts about that. I, I think I share your concerns that simply, number one, those things might not be survivable in this battle space, but even if they were, they're so much more expensive to procure than large numbers fairly um, fairly low cost uh, unmanned systems and drones that uh, it doesn't seem to be that the cost there is worth any additional capability you might gain. Uh, and that maybe using large numbers of unmanned systems to provide that targeting network really matters. But then, right, that comes back to the Army's prioritization of networks and the broader discussion of JADC2, which is we, if we're going to do this using large numbers of unmanned systems, providing us all sorts of targeting data, we have to find a way to gather all of that, um, transmit it to where it needs to go and make sense of it. And so again, like I think the joint force can say like, yeah, you know, we're looking at things like JADC2 that do exactly this, that take this, you know, this, these big streams of data, um, crunch them, whether at the tactical edge using combat cloud or um, transmit it back to a, a, a tactical operation center um, that, can, that can make sense of it. And then we go out and do targeting with that. Like that, the ability to do that in a contested environment, yeah, that seems to really make sense. Um, so I think, you know, it's not totally a positive story. There are some things where I think we look at this, and we go, okay, maybe we would change it um, in terms of, you know, what is the mix between manned and unmanned? I also think um, I'm not going to write off the age of the tank or the armored vehicle. I think some people have gotten a little bit too over their skis in that regard. Um, but I will say, I, I don't know that how much farther additional investments beyond um beyond or get it, are going to get us beyond the Abrams, um, especially, you know, with the, in the set V3 variant um, and how much 
additional juice we're going to get out of um, the sort of next generation of ground combat vehicles. And I think that's, if I'm going to editorialize here, I think that's why the army has struggled in that portfolio for so many years is it's just unclear what you're going to get for your investment of additional marginal dollars above and beyond the Abrams Bradley um, uh, team. Um, it makes a little bit more sense for the Bradley given how it's sort of maxed out on weight and, and it's, right. and it's uh, comms uh, capacity or it's networking capacity, but be that as it may, um, you know, I, I think, you know, if I'm just editorialized, I think the, the Abrams is going to be with us for a long time because I don't see um, where the additional juice is in that squeeze. The second thing I would note is that, you know, the army is not alone in this. Uh, I think all four services are, are, are suffering from this. Although I, I, I will say, I think, I think Commandant Berger is trying to move the Marine Corps away from it. And that is a platform centric force development perspective and therefore a platform centric um, procurement system and a platform centric defense industrial base. And I think what Ukraine might be suggesting to us is that yes, platforms don't matter. Tanks probably still matter. Artillery, you know, you know, self-propelled artillery probably still matters. Um, aircraft still matter. All these things don't matter. But what also matters a lot in this environment are relatively cheap, disposable things like low-cost, uh, low-cost drones, but even more so things like loitering munitions and and guided munitions of all manner. Whether that's the anti-tank guided munitions like the Javelin and the Enlaw, or that's um, anti-ship munitions like the Neptune that they used purportedly anyway, to sink right. the Moskva. Transitioning from this very platform-centric to a much more munitions and expendables-centric perspective is a hard thing to do, but I think it's necessary. And when you look at this budget that they just put out, they say, oh, you know, we maxed our buy of the Chiasm and El Razum, which at the end of the day, it's the same line. It's just a slightly different um, sensor and, uh, package on those two, um, those two weapons. Right. Because we just haven't ever thought that we needed to build enough capacity to build large numbers of these things. And, right. you know, some folks have asked like, why are we only sending them? Uh, I think it's, you know, 800 total switchblades to the Ukrainians. Well, that's because that's what our productive capacity can allow us to, to send. Why do we only sell X number, you know, sell them X number of javelins or send them, not sell them, uh, send them X number of javelins or Y number uh, of these other weapon systems? Because we've never built a production capacity for things of this nature to support high intensity and long duration warfare. Um, and I think what we're seeing is the flaw in that strategy. And, and we have to find a way to fix that, I think, by investing in perhaps and being willing to tolerate perhaps some inefficiency in our defense industrial base so that we can maintain slack capacity in peacetime that we can then ramp when we need to. The, the reason the Air Force, right, Air Forces, Air Power is useful, and I should note to our audience, uh, on uh, Tuesday, uh, day before yesterday, General Dave Deptula, the Mitchell Institute, uh, joined us to give us sort of an air power perspective to this. But one of the reasons air power is useful is you don't have to lug around those artillery shells and munitions on the ground, right? There's a way for you to project force and to actually allow your ground forces to be more agile uh, and more, more flexible in doing that. But the key is getting that battle command uh, integration together so that you have that air power whenever uh, the Chris Doherty on the ground needs it, uh, right? Whether as a general or 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 as a uh, an infantryman, and and the problem, a little bit, uh, and I think you were alluding to this is, you know, unless somebody is in charge, nobody's in charge. And right now, we're allowing each of the services to kind of do their own thing, and merge everything up downstream. 
Um, and, and that's potentially problematic, right? I mean, that works well if everybody is on the program and, and obviously there's a, there's a, there's a concern we might not be in, in terms of uh, one of the assumptions that we're making, we're making the assumption that bespoke numbers of really high-end systems are uh, really what's needed, right? We've been going down that road. We need fewer people because technology will be an enabler, but then you find out Actually, you grind down and grind through people remarkably quickly. We did that in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there weren't anything near the intensity that this is. Do we need to fundamentally change our mindset that dozens of ships, hundreds of airplanes and helicopters, thousands of vehicles? I mean, we lost thousands of MRAPs, right? And it wasn't nearly this kind of uh, battle space, even though it was very, very intense. And I'm not minimizing what anybody experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan because there were enormously high intensity elements of it. But do we need to fundamentally change our assumptions that fewer people, fewer things, more expensive, higher technology ones are the solution? I mean, is that basically, you know, and, and prepare the American people Then, in the event the shooting starts, we're going to lose a lot of stuff quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think to your last point, I would say yes, without a doubt, we need to, and, and, and I hate to say this, um, you know, I, I was I was telling a colleague yesterday, like I'm simultaneously fascinated by Ukraine because it's it's really probably the first um, modern war that we have seen since you know maybe the Gulf War of 1990, where two sides that are actually you know fairly competent and fairly um, you know fairly closely aligned in military power fighting one another um, using modern weaponry. Um, and yet I'm sort of repulsed by my own interest in it because I, I see the tragedy for what it is and, and the human toll that it's taking. But I do think that there, if there's a silver lining from a U.S. perspective um, in the, this tragedy, it's, it's exposing the American public to the realities of modern warfare. Um, after 30 years of, of kind of seeing warfare as, yes, like it's a shame, like people are dying, but they're dying in the, the handfuls and the dozens rather than in the hundreds and the thousands and the tens of thousands. Um, and, and I think that's given a lot of Americans a bit of a skewed view of warfare. Uh, and frankly, I, you know, one of the things I think that's really important to know is it's also reminding the world of just how hard real modern combined arms maneuver warfare is. Um, and it's exposing people to just how good the United States armed forces really are, which I think is also a, a kind of a, a net positive there. But I, I do take your point regarding this path that DOD has tried to be on for, you know, for many years and certainly accelerated after, after Deputy Secretary Work talked about uh, the third offset strategy and the 2018 National Defense Strategy really emphasized the need to modernize the armed forces and to build higher capability, higher technology assets. And I think you're seeing that in this administration's first two defense budgets. They are throwing a lot of money at research and development, in particular, in the last in in the last two budget submissions to Congress, um, and, and that comes at a cost, right? If you're going to hold all things being equal, you're not going to invest in much as much in your people, and you're going to reduce your overall capacity. And we see a lot of the wailing and gnashing of teeth over the Navy's um, divest to invest strategy. Um, but the Navy is looking at say, look, where else do you want us to spend money? Like we we can we can have so many people, we can have so many ships, or we can have the ships be really good or they can be really ready and we can make some trade-offs between that. But, but at the end of the day, I've only got so much money from, from the Congress. I think there, that we have to make a slight division between what we are doing in terms of 
almost serving as an arsenal of democracy for states like Ukraine and Taiwan and how we train, advise and equip them for their own challenges and what we as a, as a United States joint force are buying. I think we, because we have a very large budget, have the luxury of doing a little bit of both. I think we, we need sometimes very high-end, very expensive, very exquisite weapon systems. Um, there are needs for that. Um, and you know, I, I would not want us to get rid of certain aspects of capability, right? You know, I really want the Columbia class SSBN to be the best darn boat that it can possibly be because our nuclear deterrence depends on that thing working when it needs to work without fail, right? That, that needs to be exquisite. Um, but I do think that there are other things where we may not need that exquisite level of capability and we, where we may want to intentionally buy something that we can buy at scale for a lower cost that provides enough capability that we can iterate with over time rather than trying to buy the perfect objective item right. um, the first time. Um, and I think finding the balance between those is something that has been really, really difficult to do in practice and something that we're, we're continually trying to work on. But I do think Ukraine is giving us some ideas about where to go in those environments and where to put some bets on what it is that we might want to have. And I think you know, the, these very impactful combinations of relatively cheap unmanned systems with guided munitions, and, and particularly the tactical guided munitions or short range guided munitions, like the Javelin, like the N-Law, um, like some of the, the, the loitering munitions that you've talked about earlier, those seem to have a lot of bang for their buck. And so the question is, how do we work those into our current system alongside some of our big exquisite things? But I think another thing that I always like to point out to people, we're watching as the Russians trip over their logistical incapabilities in this war, one of the unique problems the United States has is that we don't get the luxury of fighting on our backyard. Um, now, the good side of that is we're not fighting on our home territory as we're witnessing in Ukraine. That's a terrible thing to do. But the downside of that is logistically, we have to bring our stuff with us, which means a lot of our platforms, they tend to be big. Um, they tend to have long ranges and long endurances because we intend to operate them 10,000 nautical miles away from home. And that puts some limitations on how cheaply right. we can build certain things. You know, ships have to be a certain size in order to to you know, go transoceanics, um, you know, uh, aircraft have to have a certain range, uh, a ferry range, so they can go from base to base with you know minimum quantity of, of aerial refueling. And these are some pretty constant constraints that we place upon ourselves by operating the way we do. And we could do something very different, but it would require a fundamental rethink of U.S. defense strategy around a much more forward stationed, forward postured approach that is tailored to particular theaters and threats rather than our current global strategy that flexes from place to place right. um, from a homeland uh, base. And that's, that's like a radical rethink of U.S. defense strategy. I don't know that we're there yet, but you can kind of see the outlines of like, oh, I, you know, I have a force that's like mostly distributed unmanned systems and unmanned undersea vehicles and anti-ship munitions in, you know, in, in East Asia. And I might have a lot more you know, air to, or uh, ground to ground surface fires, you know, unmanned ground systems in Europe and the two would never cross pollinate because they're radically different forces for different theaters. But again, that's like not the defense strategy we pursued for the last 70 or 80 years. How much of what we're seeing in Russia directly correlates to preparing for China? 
in, in your view, right? Two autocratic systems, very different, as you noted, China, much more technologically sophisticated, working on quantum computing, um, more focused on logistics, right? I mean, our logistical challenges, we, you know, Taiwan is much closer to China than it is to the United States or, or its allies, right? I mean, as, as people, as the economist pointed out that, uh, last week, right? Um, Australia is close, that China is closer to Berlin than it is to Australia, right? So, you know, the distances are vast, but what do you think carries over, right? What's the direct line you can draw between these two coming from Russia to better prepare for China? One of the direct lines is the coexistence um, of highly advanced systems alongside brutal, attritional human warfare. Um, you know, when we in the United States talk about a fight for Taiwan, in our minds, it is an air-sea operation conducted from range, largely with standoff munitions, maybe some submarines, and that's how we conceptualize it. It's, you know, like we're launching long-range anti-ship missiles and we're launching maritime strike tactoms and, you know, we're launching Mark 48 ADCAP torpedoes and it's all about this, you know, exquisite targeting competition, all these sort of things that are very real from the U.S. perspective. Um, but when you fight this out, a ground fight over Taiwan, it is a grinding, very like up close and personal battle because there's just not a lot of space on Taiwan for maneuver. So it's like a, it's a knife fight in a phone booth between these forces that are trying to land and the forces that are trying to repel them. So you've got, again, that, that juxtaposition of the sublime with the quotidian. And it's, it's, it's really, I think, an interesting thing, at least when I've, when I've wargamed it and, and done any uh, modeling and research on it. Um, I think another critical aspect to it, and I think this is a place where we need to focus laser-like on examining uh, our, our opponent, is in the area of command and control. I think Chinese technical capabilities in command and control will likely be a lot better than the Russian technical capabilities. With that being said, they both share a common predilection, and that is they really like direct centralized control from the political leadership and the Chinese uh, Central Military Commission straight down to the commander who's overseeing operations. Um, and you know, I, we've, we've run some war games where we try to model Chinese command and control and we had it going from you know, the, the Central Military Commission to one of their, their you know, recently formed theater commanders. And we had a, a red expert on China saying, you know, actually you might just see a direct line of authority from the Central Military Commission straight to that tactical commander. Right. And in addition to that, you're going to have political officers there exerting sort of the, the because again, the PLA is the party's military, um, exerting that direct political control. That is, I think, a weakness, in my opinion, in some respects, that if we are clever in the United States, we can exploit. As we're seeing in Russia, when one person or a small handful of people control the levers of power, they can, they can move quickly in a lot of directions because they don't face any opposition. They can also make really stupid decisions without anybody questioning them. Um, right. And I think that's another direct line, if you had to ask me, is that if there is a breakdown in how um, she is getting provided information, we could possibly see another situation like what we're seeing with Putin and, and the decision-making process that led to Ukraine, where like a host of really bad or skewed assumptions lead us toward a war that we might not have otherwise gone toward. Um, again, that's that's more that's that's slightly more extrapolatory. 
um, than anything else. But I do think that that, you know, as we're witnessing what happens, as you mentioned earlier, in an autocratic system where the information conduits and the levels of trust are really, really low, um, I think that is a, that is a possibility. Uh, and the last thing I think, you know, is the criticality of logistics on both sides. So the United States faces a pretty darn big logistical hurdle. Um, you know, when you look at a map of the Pacific, you just see a lot of like empty blue space. Um, you got Guam, and then you got like a lot of empty blue space. Then you have Japan, you have a handful of bases and ports. Um, and then you've got Australia, which is, you know, as you mentioned, really, really, really far away from where the fight is actually gonna be occurring. Um, not a lot of options there uh, for logistical hubs from the US perspective. But the Chinese in, in an invasion of Taiwan would face a similar problem. There's just not a lot of places to put ashore on Taiwan if the opponent actually goes and says, you know, I'm going to blow up the port facility and I'm going to sink a boat in the mouth of this harbor so you can't get in, um, or I'm going to mine it, you know, or I'm going to do all three at once. Good luck taking this port and using it for your, to support your operations. And they have to find a way to get all of their stuff and all of their forces across this roughly hundred miles of open ocean. The, the tides there are, are not friendly um, to amphibious operations. There's not going to be a whole lot of surprise, right? There's no, there's no operation overlord where you fake that you're going to the Pas de Calais and then you kind of do an end run to Normandy. Like they're going to know when you're coming roughly. They're going to know where you're going roughly. Um, and that's going to be a pretty brutal attritional fight. Um, if, you know, especially if we, if we make some smart investments uh, along the lines of what we were talking about, which is invest more in sort of these munitions that, um, and expendable systems that can be really effective in these environments. Um, but then, right, how you, even if you get a foothold, how do you keep that thing resupplied? How do you keep the fuel and the munitions right. and the medical supplies and the food coming? And how are you exfiltrating the wounded and the bodies and all of the detritus? That's a tough, tough question. And it's one that it took us a lot, a lot of blood and treasure to figure out from Guadalcanal and Torch all the way through, you know, Okinawa and, and Overlord and Dragoon. Um, in, in World War II. And, it, and we, we learned a lot of lessons. We thought we had done a lot of really good experimentation and doctrinal development prior to things like those, you know, those initial uh, amphib invasions. And we found out just how wrong we were after the first few and how much iteration we had to do to get to where we needed to be. I don't know that China's got multiple die rolls at this, right? They've got one shot. And right. so if I were a Chinese military planner, I would be like, wow, okay, let me go back to the drawing board and really revisit all of my logistical assumptions and all my command and control assumptions. Um, those are the, those are the big direct lines. I, I would say um, there's probably more than that, but I understand your podcast is only so long. So I've only got so well, long. With you. Let me, let me give you, let me give you one more minute and ask you uh, really quickly two two other questions. Then does penny piece, right? I mean, our uh, approach to the Pacific is more smaller units in many more places, but to me, they're, presents a whole bunch of logistical challenges with not necessarily that much advantage. Is, is that a problematic approach to be taking ultimately of, I'm going to deposit Marines with missiles here, there, and army guys and long range fires and forward fire bases. I mean, you know, and, and we want to sort of position this as if we're going to move around on five minute alert with pilots sleeping under their wings of their planes, which yeah is unlikely. Is that a faulty assumption very, very br briefly? And I'm happy to have you back to expand on it. And the, the second question is, um, very briefly, if you were going to give a handful of things, you know, what, what are the things that the international community should be giving to the Ukrainians? Because there are some things they want, like fighter planes, which they could use and a whole bunch of other things. And we're sending them 
the 155 artillery tubes and bullets, not a bad thing, but it's an artillery battalion, not minimizing it, yeah. but they have a lot of other needs that might be somewhat more pressing. Yeah. Um, really so quickly take, on both. Take, yeah. Take, take the first question. Um, I would say you're absolutely right. You're hitting on a critical point. That's a difficult part of both distributed maritime operations, the Navy, um, agile combat employment for the air force, EABO for, for the Marine Corps. Um, and, and, and it's the, the army multi-domain task force problem. Um, distributing yourselves leaves you open to defeat in detail, but perhaps more than that, it creates these enormous command and control and logistical problems. Cause now I gotta, I gotta support people sprinkled all over the place. It's hard. And now I've reduced my combat capability because I'm, I'm operating inefficiently. In some ways, you're kind of doing the adversary's job for them by spreading yourself thin. The, but the alternative, unfortunately, in the Western Pacific is to be concentrated and die under a withering attack of long-range guided munitions. And so I think we have to do these things. The key, and you hear this talked about it, um, across all of these, is how do we orchestrate all of these distributed units operating on exterior lines? How can we orchestrate them so that they can concentrate their fires against points, even though they themselves are distributed? And it's not just fires. It's, I mean, I think, you know, we can sometimes use the term effects, right? So how do we take a force that's located perhaps in the Ryukyus and a force that's located somewhere um, in the Philippines, and they both can achieve an effective same time on target against a Chinese ship operating in the South China Sea. It's a very difficult thing to do. It requires pretty exquisite targeting capabilities and command and control. But if you can do that, the effective combat power of those two things is multiplied because of your ability to do two things at once and come from different axes. So that's, that's at least the theory of the case, but I agree with you. It needs more digging into, but you know, if we've only got another minute and I've probably taken three just to explain that one. Um, on the second point, what ought we be giving the Ukrainians? I mean, I, a continued provision of anti-tank guided munitions um, to the extent we provide them. I would argue not just um, artillery tubes, but if we could find a way to get them um, some of the like fancy guided Excalibur rounds or other forms of guided artillery rounds and potentially guided mortar rounds. Um, and I would, I would add to that more mortar tubes, um, especially if you're going to get into these positional battles um, along the sort of Eastern place where I would imagine um, the, the separatist forces are probably trying to fix the Ukrainians. Um, mortars are a great way of either keeping people's heads down or creating a lot of casualties. Guided mortars can be particularly effective in that. I would say mobile um, short-range air defenses to both, both man pads, but, a, you know, vehicle-based if they can get them. Um, I tend to be a little skeptical of their absorptive capacity when it comes to new jet aircraft, um, but it seems we've kind of done an end run on that. Um, the news coming out today is we provide them with a lot of spare parts that are helping keeping their MiG-29s running, which I think is an effective way uh, of providing them with an additional capability without necessarily sending them an aircraft. Um, I think continuing to provide them with intelligence and information and support in the cyber domain, um, which I think is probably going to be one of the untold stories um, for quite some time of this war is, is the amount of support they're getting in the cyber domain and providing them with space-based capabilities as well for intelligence and, and communication, reconnaissance and position navigation and timing. Um, some other things that might be, speaking of position navigation timing, um, GPS jammers or GLONASS jammers in the case of, uh, of the Russians to prevent them from using um, precision guided fires against uh, Ukrainian positions. Uh, and then, you know, some of the quotidian stuff you know, body armor that can keep keep soldiers alive um, rather than rather than dying and um, improve medical training and medical keep capabilities. It's something that we in the United States Armed Forces take for granted that we have some of the world's 
best combat medics and best uh, combat medicine. Um, but most armed forces don't get that. And particularly the Russians do not get that. Um, you know, they are dying in large numbers from wounds that a, a U.S. soldier or Marine would not have died from. Um, and providing Ukrainians with some of that capability, whether it's via training or equipment, um, would I think go a long way both to, to preserving their force, but also to increasing the morale of their forces. They're engaged in the sort of attritional grinding combat. Chris, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And, yeah. and look forward to having you uh, back on for a broader joint service discussion on some of the trade-offs uh, that we need to make. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. Happy to be here. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.